welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm speaking with Hannah Gavin, a microbiologist and educator who researches viruses and also manages Harvard's Microbial Sciences Initiative. She studies ocean bacteriophages, or viruses that infect bacteria. I wanted to ask her about that and what it's like to study something we can't see with the naked eye. Here she is. Hannah Gavin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You study bacteriophages, which are viruses that attack bacteria. Tell me how they work and what specifically are you trying to learn from them? Yeah, so bacteriophages or eaters of bacteria, that's what the name means, are these viruses that are specific for bacteria. So they're viruses that infect pretty much any type of cellular life. But these viruses are specific for bacteria. So if we were to, you know, put them onto or in a human, they wouldn't infect human cells at all. They just attack the bacteria. The life cycle of a bacteriophage is essentially that there's this viral particle, very tiny, and it attaches to the surface of a bacteria. And then it injects its DNA or RNA into that bacterial cell, and it then uses the cellular machinery to replicate. So viruses are essentially parasites. They can't replicate by themselves, which is why they aren't technically considered alive, but they replicate using the help of a cell. And so they make more viral particles, phage particles inside a bacterial cell. And then ultimately there's this sort of lethal microscopic burst where the new phage particles burst out of the bacteria, killing it, obviously, and then go on to infect more neighboring cells. So there are lots of things you can imagine in that process that would be interesting to try to study. There are lots of different types of phages too. And so a lot of scientists are asking, how do they attach to the bacteria? What sorts of structures do they use to attach to the bacteria? How do they replicate inside the bacterial cell? And some of this for some phages is known, but there's a lot of unknowns too. And then the flip side of that really is how do bacteria resist phage infection? How do they evolve to become resistant to that too? Yeah, and that's really interesting because the bacteriophages and bacteria have been interacting with each other almost since the beginning of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's sort of been this evolutionary arms race between the two where mm -hmm. viruses are getting better and better at infecting bacteria and bacteria are getting better and better at avoiding viral infection. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. It's not static. It's, it's a really dynamic process. And because they're both capable of evolution, or it's because they're both capable of evolution. So you have 
bacteria evolving and viruses evolving in response and vice versa. The interesting thing about that is by studying these adaptations in bacteria or their responses to viruses and vice versa, you can sort of develop some sort of understanding of how we might utilize those responses in our own scientific experimentation and our own development of drugs. Oh, absolutely. I think that there are a few different really big drivers behind asking questions related to phages and bacteria or really, really anything that might be considered basic science in the lab. And one of those is for curiosity and humans wanting to learn more and wanting to have a conceptual understanding of how the world works. But also one of them is potential application and potentially learning something that might benefit society and humanity and figuring out how we can apply what's happening in nature and what, as you point out, has been happening for so long, for so much longer than we as humans have been studying it. <laughs> Many people will say that biology has had a better chance to get it right than we do because it's been happening mm. for so long. You use viruses that were gathered from seawater, yes. correct? So ocean viruses. Mm -hmm. How do you study these viruses in the lab? It seems like it must be really tricky to study something you can't see. Yeah. So viruses by nature are very, very tiny, usually tinier than bacteria are. So I think it's a really natural assumption for anybody doing any sort of microbiology that we're using microscopes a lot. And certainly many microbiologists use microscopes in their work, but actually a lot of us don't. And that's because there are processes that you can observe or basically indirect evidence that you can use for detecting your organism or, or microbe of interest. And so for phages, that's really what we do. We can use the fact that phages kill bacteria to detect their presence in many ways. And so a basic outline of an experiment would be that I would grow some bacteria because, as I mentioned before, the viruses need the bacteria to replicate. And so I'd grow some bacteria and then add phages to bacteria and then depending on the experiment that I'm doing, the outcome that I'm looking for, I can you know, use that phage and bacteria combination to look for some sort of outcome and count essentially how many phages come out of a single bacterial cell or were in a given sample or how they interact with the bacteria that we're studying. So really, we're just looking for evidence of the phages being there by the fact that they've killed bacteria. What does that look like? I use a lot of Petri dishes and I do a lot of counting, which is not super glamorous, but it's honest. It's, um, I think that <laughs> a lot of science just involves a lot of counting things. You're basically asking a question and then quantifying some sort of outcome. You know, I'll grow, streak out the bacteria onto a Petri dish using a, a nutrient jelly called auger. And then, you know, you get colonies or these dots of individual bacteria. And then I can grow those in a liquid media and, we can detect the presence of bacteria growing because the media will go from being clear to being really opaque or what we call turbid. And then I can take those bacteria and combine them with phage. And then usually that involves putting them back on a plate on a Petri dish with auger. And the plate, when it's covered in bacteria, will also become opaque because there are so many bacteria there. That's We call it a lawn. But wherever a phage has landed a clear spot will develop. And that's because initially you can't see where the phage has landed, but as it multiplies and as it kills bacteria, it will develop a spot on the plate where it's killing. And actually those spots grow over time too, because the phage is moving outward and propagating. And so you get these zones of clearance on the plate and they're basically a clear spot you can see through because it 
they've killed all the bacteria, so it's not opaque or turbid anymore. So it's kind of like flying over a forest that's been infected by some sort of blight or something like that, where Absolutely, like yeah. you would fly over it and you would see green and then there would be spots of, of dead trees that have been infected by some sort of blight. Yeah, that's a really Somewhere. good analogy. Is that if you look, were to look down and you'd see a, a cluster of brown trees or cluster of trees where all the leaves have fallen off, yeah, that's a, that's a great visualization. So then what do you do? So you find these clear areas, then how do you go in and capture the virus? And then what do you do? Sometimes counting is the outcome that we're looking for. Sometimes that lets me know the answer that I needed. You know, I can count those clear spots, the zones of clearance on a plate and say, okay, great. Now I can back calculate how many phages there were in this sample. That's my answer. But oftentimes we are wanting to then isolate the phage. And so I take a tip that would be used on a pipette and use it to puncture the plate and collect this small plug of auger covered in bacteria and phage. And then I basically can puncture through it and take this little kind of akin to a soil core, except very small. <laughs> and so that way we can isolate the phage that are there. So you sort of like cookie cut a bit out. And yeah, then you exactly. Take, you take the cookie out and you can isolate it. Yeah. And then a cookie so cutter you, or like a, have biscuit cutters at home that you can punch down into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then so you can isolate the virus that way. And then, and then what do you do? And then we can do a couple of different outcomes. Maybe I'll grow it because I want to then use it for subsequent experiments, especially if I'm working from a sample at the beginning that wasn't homogenous. So maybe there are lots of different viruses in an original sample and I'm wanting to focus on one so I could grow more of it. Oftentimes we also sequence them. And so we're in an age where genetic and genomic sequencing is relative to what it was in the past, fast and cheap. And so we do a lot of sequencing and that allows us to characterize the viruses, not only on their characteristics, not only on how quickly they kill bacteria, how many viruses come out of a given bacterial cell, but also on the basis of their genetic content. We're in the process of doing that right now. We're going to sequence some so that we can then go back and look in other samples and see how prevalent they are, whether they're there, how many copies of them, that sort of thing. And then having the sequence also allows you to compare and contrast them to other viruses, which is really helpful, especially because scientists think that we've really only scratched the surface in terms of viral diversity. And so it's really helpful to be able to say, oh, this gene in this virus seems to be similar to these other viruses. This gene we haven't really seen before, or this arrangement of genes we haven't seen before. So being able to compare and contrast them to other existing sequences is also really helpful. Okay, interesting. So there's sort of an evolutionary component to this too, mm -hmm. by sort of understanding relationships between viruses. Yeah. Let's talk about ocean viruses and why they're interesting. You know, sure. first off, talk about just the sheer number of viruses in the ocean, which I think is pretty fascinating. It's huge. Viruses are the single most abundant biological entity in the ocean. And that's crazy. It's just the numbers are millions per milliliter of seawater. It's neat to know that. And then it's also neat to see it. People have taken samples of seawater and then stained them using 
dyes, fluorescent dyes that attach to DNA, and then looked at the result under a microscope. And it actually looks sort of galaxy-like, or at least what I imagine the galaxy to look like, (laughs) maybe sort of the Milky Way. You have different bursts where you can see these different sizes of organisms or microbes, and they're just tremendously abundant. It's pretty amazing. Why are they so abundant in the ocean? Because they can be in the sense that they're, they're sort of growing to the nutrient capacity that is allowed by the ocean. And there's some sort of cap on that, some sort of carrying capacity that any ecosystem has. But they're in an environment that they've been very successful to adapting to and to, to replicating in and also to interacting in. And so they're just really, they're just really flourishing there. It's wild to think about you know, this whole world that exists within our own world that we can't see or really detect without really sophisticated science. Absolutely. You know, it's just mind boggling. Why do you think it's important to study these viruses that are found in the ocean? I would say there are a few different aspects to that. And we touched on this a little bit earlier. I think upon realizing this, upon getting to look at an ocean sample or a pond sample or a soil sample, and realizing that there's life happening that maybe our naked eye isn't privy to, I think it's really natural to be really curious about that and to want to understand how it works. So at some level, because it's fascinating, and then at a, at a more applied level, microbes are tremendously important for a few different processes. And I guess I'll talk about viruses specifically, but When we think about the ocean, viruses are helping cycle a lot of nutrients because of their capacity to kill microbes, to kill bacteria and other microscopic organisms in the ocean. And you might imagine that that would be a negative thing. We hear a virus or killing or those those have negative connotations, but realistically, they're helping carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and all these sorts of essential elements and molecules to be cycled and recycled. And by killing a bacteria, they're releasing a lot of those nutrients and then they get taken up into other organisms. And that's an ongoing cyclical process. So that's pretty cool because that directly relates to something that really matters to us, which is global climate change, Mm -hmm. for example. So it's really these bacteria and also these algae, Mm -hmm. essentially, that absorb the vast majority of the carbon from our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And they take that carbon, they turn it into nutrients that are consumed by other critters in the ocean and subsequently transported to the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so by taking that carbon out of the atmosphere, that's literally what makes our planet habitable. So viruses, you could argue, are directly responsible for making our planet habitable. Is that fair? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? Mm. No. I definitely remember being fascinated by science starting maybe in middle school. I had a great life science class, and that was when I first realized that things were made out of cells, which was definitely a pretty life-altering moment. I think I realized that there was this whole level of 
life happening that I didn't see simply because our eyes can't see it normally, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, but realize that it was happening nonetheless, regardless of whether or not I could observe it on the day to day. And it was influencing me anyway. So I definitely remember being, being interested by science from that point forward and liking how it changed my perspective on things like on the apple that I ate as an after school snack or on trees or, or other aspects of nature. But I, I definitely didn't know from that moment on that I was going to study science. I went through a few different iterations of hopeful career paths. I was going to be a dolphin trainer at one point. Uh, <laughs> like so many of I us. I <laughs> was going to be a chef at one point. That was a fun oh, one. Cool. Or a restaurateur. Late in high school, I had a really fantastic chemistry class. So then going into college, I thought, okay, this seems pretty sweet. Maybe I'll study chemistry and teach. And then I got hooked on research while I was in college. That was just so much fun, hands-on research. And what so kind then of research did you do? I was studying the gut and how the mm. high-fat diets impact the gut, basically, and then maybe our risk for diseases. I think digestion is a really interesting aspect of physiology and biology. There's so much happening in the gut. <laughs> Where did you go from there? Well, at that point, I still considered myself a pretty human-centric biologist. I thought that you know human health was where it was at. But right around that time is when we as a scientific community, we as a human community, started appreciating and understanding the complexity of the gut microbiome. And so suddenly, this organ that I had been studying wasn't just human cells anymore. It was also this incredibly complex milieu of microbes and genes and and processes that were going on. So that sort of sparked my awareness or renewed awareness of microbes. And I went on to graduate school and even then wasn't really committed yet to microbiology. I tried three different labs, all centered around gut health. And one of them was studying colon cancer. One of them was studying gut immunology and One of them was studying a bacteria that infected the gut. And that was the first time I'd really worked with microbes and it was fun. They grow quickly, or at least the microbes that I was using, they grow quickly and you can do various manipulations. And it was becoming more clear every day that microbes were also really important to human health too. So there's this very clear tie to human health. And I just got sold, sold on microbes. (laughs) It's funny, you talk to people who do things like study lions or rhinos or, or things like that, like the charismatic megafauna that yes. you know, so many people get into biology and behavioral ecology for. Mm-hmm. And it ends up kind of being a little boring because you end up sitting around for long periods of time and waiting for the moment when you can get the data you need, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or it's like hard to find what you need to find you know, <laughs> yeah. to get the data you need. And microbial sciences are like, in some ways, it's so much more exciting because things are happening constantly. It's, there's so much action. <laughs> That's a really good point. The time scales on a microbial life or a, or a replication cycle are just pretty astounding. They're astoundingly fast for a lot of them. Yeah. So it's like really easy to get a lot of data really fast mm-hmm. and, and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's anybody who listens to this and studies tuberculosis, though, is going to really <laughs> come oh, back. Really? Why is that? It takes weeks to grow, whereas oh. the a lot of the bacteria I study, they're in the Vibrio genus. And 
they they multiplied really quickly, you know, like double in half an hour type of situation. So oh man, maybe I'm spoiled in terms of some microbiologists, but relative to anybody studying something that takes 15 years to mature yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> decades to mature, it's real fast. Yeah. So how did you get to ocean viruses? Oh yeah. Well, the, the gut pathogen that I was studying, this bacteria that infects the human gut, it gets there via oysters or shellfish that people are eating. And so for a few years, I studied a toxin that the bacteria produce and how that harms the gut lining and really interesting stuff. And then towards the end of my graduate work, I started thinking more about why that toxin had evolved in the first place. And in order to think about those things, I had to think about the fact that this bacteria was evolving in the ocean. And even though it's really unfortunate that humans get exposed to it by eating raw shellfish, the bacteria didn't evolve to do that. It's an, an incidental infection. They actually, they evolved to compete and exist and thrive and survive in the ocean. And so then I started thinking about how that's true for a lot of microbes, as, as we mentioned, there are just so many microbes in the ocean. And that really there's just a huge abundance of microbial life happening there and, and evolution. And that's where a lot of the action's happening. One of the big pressures on any bacteria living in the ocean is viral predation, is phage predation. And so that's how I eventually got to, to what I'm studying now. It's interesting that as a child, you went from wanting to be a dolphin trainer to a chef. Because, you know, in some ways, you're kind of doing all of that right now and, and an educator, right? Like mm. doing science in the lab is a lot like cooking, right? It is. It is. <laughs> you're it's very hands-on. There are recipes, aka protocols. Yeah, completely. Yeah. You're training bacteria and viruses. And you're also involved in a lot of museum work and education. So you found this way to combine all of your interests, which I yes. think is really cool. I really have. I feel so fortunate. And I think it's also fun to reflect on that. It's not something I do every day, but it's fun talking to you about it and reflecting on how bits and pieces of those thoughts or dreams or aspirations along the way have puzzle pieced together into what I'm doing now. In addition to your work as a scientist, you also volunteer at the museum and you're a program manager for the Microbial Sciences Initiative, MSI, at Harvard. So tell me about the work you do for each and what you hope to inspire in others in doing that work. I hope it's obvious from talking up to this point that I really enjoy being in the lab and hands-on research is a lot of fun, but I also love talking to people about research and I love facilitating other people learning about various aspects of science or biology. And there are numerous different forms that that takes. Some of it's in a classroom, some of it's at conferences, some of it's in random meetings in hallways, and some of it's in places like museums. So I love being involved in all of those different facets. MSI is an intellectual epicenter for microbiology in New England. And it, it came out of the realization that even at one university at Harvard, microbiology was happening in different departments and different programs and different campuses. And that sometimes that's a barrier to people knowing what's happening with other microbiologists, even at the same university. So it was founded on the idea that those microbial scientists needed the opportunity to communicate and collaborate, and that there should be some sort of central organizing hub to do that. And so that's ultimately what we're trying to do at Harvard, but also throughout New England. And particularly now that things have gone remote, even nationally and internationally, bringing together people from 
all sorts of different microbial science communities from different physical places. And so that takes the form of organizing seminars and symposia, opportunities for people to get to know each other's research, to present their research, to talk about it. I work with undergraduate students during the summer to organize a fellowship program where they get to do research. And we also get together to talk about applied microbiology. We brew some kombucha. We talk about Hmm. professional development. Then among the different outreach efforts that MSI has, one has been this connection to the microbial life exhibit at the museum, which started long before I came. But when I arrived in, actually, this is a funny story. When I arrived in Boston, the microbial life exhibit was set to only be available for a few more weeks. And so I put it on my list of things to do, things that I had to do in my first few weeks in the area. That's so funny. Um, Because it's just, as, as you probably know, microbes don't really get spots in most museums, despite being so intimately connected to the natural history, the history of our planet, the history of our species. It's because they're so small and not obvious that we're interacting with them. They, for many years, haven't had much of a place in a museum. And so I put it on my list of things to do, went to the exhibit and thought that was great. I've seen that. I've done that. Thank goodness I made it in time. And then when the exhibit got extended, I started volunteering at the demo station, showing people things through the microscope, talking about fermented foods, talking about different sorts of accessible microbes. Thankfully, that exhibit's still around. So I'm still doing that, (laughs) or at least still when we're in person and still chatting about microbes in some other capacities too. So what do you hope to inspire in those kids and those visitors? Mm, I don't know. Thinking back to the realization for me that things were made out of cells and, whoa, my apple is made out of cells and all of life is layers that I can't see on a daily basis, but they're there and they're happening. I think that really changed the way that I go about my day and go about my life. I think that appreciation, I hope some people walk away with and maybe a little bit of curiosity to explore some aspect that strikes them, whether it's making some sort of fermented food at home or just reading about the way that life works at at this level, at this scale that we can't normally see. Why do you think it's essential we develop an understanding of the microbial world, which is a place that's largely invisible to us? Mm, It is invisible to us. But it has a tremendous impact on our planet. There is no ecosystem, almost no process that I can think of that is not influenced by microbes, whether or not we can see it. The more we look into, the more we find. Whether we're looking to wrangle or harness some sort of process that a microbe has already come up with for our collective benefit, or just looking to be odd. In either case, uh, microbial life can do it for you. (laughs) Hannah Gavin, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Today's HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. 
Special thanks to Hannah Gavin and Harvard's Microbial Sciences Initiative for their wisdom and expertise. By the way, stay tuned for a new online exhibit spotlight on viruses that we worked on with Hannah, which will release soon on the HMSC Connects website. Also, just to let you know, we're taking a little bit of a break from the podcast for the holiday season, but we'll be back in the middle of January next year. Thanks so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next year.